As we come uh, to the scripture, let me ask you, please, to pray with me. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word. We trust that through it, uh, you give us life. You sustain the life that you give us. You enable us to persevere, not uh, kicking and screaming, but actually persevere with joy in the midst of the world in which we live because we know that you are with us. This assures us, this reminds us, this sinks us deeper into you. So we pray that your word would have that work in us today. This we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Judges in chapter chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. I just want to read to verse 19. Judges, Old Testament. Um, Chapter 2, please. This is the word of the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And and Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to angry. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. When they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the ways in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And then we say, the grass withers, and the flower falls, and the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, why judges? Why not? Right? 
It's in the Bible. We just finished Ruth. And I, I have to say that as I was uh, working our way through Ruth for uh, a little while, that that I uh, just began to think again about this time in redemptive history. You remember that uh, Ruth begins, it's, that this occurred, her story in the days of the judges. And so I just once again began to think of this time in redemptive history and how uh, much we can learn from that uh, period of, of, of time. I always love, personally, the Old Testament. It's the context for the New Testament. Um, uh, you remember St. Augustine's great line uh, that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. And so when we're reading through the Old Testament, uh, we really can see, if we have eyes to see, and now we do because the New Testament has happened, we can see uh, the work of Christ. And we can see the life of the church there in, in sort of picture form as it's, it's being played out uh, in history in various ways. And so, so we get the context of the salvation that we have in Christ by understanding the New Testament to the degree that we don't is, the, is a degree to which we don't understand fully the work, the work of Christ. It's kind of like getting to know a person, you know. I can get to know you today as you are, but when I really get to know where you've come from, and your heritage and your history and your people and all of that, and then I get to know you, know you better. And so that's the sense of, of, of excitement that we have that we come to the, to the Old Testament. We also know, remember when we started Ruth, we began to talk about what the New Testament says about the Old Testament. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that, that we have warnings that we're not to follow idols as they did. That is very apropos here. The idolatry that existed during the time of the judges was actually their downfall. But also the hope that we have. One of the fascinating things as we read through the judges is, uh, I, I guess, two things. One is uh, their relentless persistence in rebellion and self-destruction. But also... God's relentless persistence <laughs> in preserving them. I mean, as you read through this, one of the things at least I see if I sort of pretend like I'm reading this for the first time and I don't know how it ends, I think this is it. This is the end of the people of God. And yet it's not. And that's astounding. And there's great hope for us in that. What I read this morning in chapter two, really, as you read chapters one and two, there's two introductions to this to this book. They both begin with Joshua dying, if you will, but but give a little bit of a picture. We'll go back and and see chapter one in a minute a bit. But 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 what we see here is the cycle that many of you know is in this book of Judges. Uh, It begins with the rebellion of the people of God against God, uh, idolatry and usually in particular pockets of Israel. As the people are entering the land and settling in. We look at here and here and here, different places at different times. And we see uh, their rebellion, their idolatry, they're turning against God. And that um, causes God to be angry with them. Not the, the angry of hatred, but the angry of love. The angry that says, why are you doing this? You shouldn't be doing this. We're in a relationship together. You promised faithfulness to me. Look at what I've done for you. Oh, we're in this together. And now you've turned away. It's that kind of anger, you see. And then what happens is that, that the idols which they worship from the people of the land come against them and enslave them like idols always do. 
Idols always enslave us. They hold out the, the promises, I'm going to make this better for you. But after a while, we end up serving them in a way that destroys us. And so God lets that happen. We see it as the enemies come and, 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 and take them over, if you will, enslave the people. The people are miserable eventually in the midst of that. And then they remember God. They cry out to God. And God in his kindness and his faithfulness comes to them. He sends these uh, charismatic leaders called judges who he raises up then to come against the enemy and deliver the people. And as long as the judge is alive, then all is well. But when the judge dies, then we have the cycle again and again and again and again. Now, now the, the, the presenting cause of that is the people's idolatry, that they go after other gods. That's the presenting issue. But there's a deeper, more fundamental issue that's necessary and helpful for us to see. Uh, just to put us in context, um, the judges begin, in essence, when, when Joshua dies. You remember how, how we get there. Um, Abraham uh, gets a great promise from God. And God promises Abraham that he's going to be the, the father of a great nation. And he'll have many descendants and, and all of that. And, and, and he says, however, before you get to the land that I'm promising you and for your descendants, there's going to be 400 years of slavery. And then in Genesis 15, we have this little kind of ancillary comment, it seems like to us. He says, because the, 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 the fullness of the sin of the Amorites is not yet. And I mean, sinned in that part of the world enough for me to cast them out. And so we, we know that that really does happen. We know that there's a famine in the land eventually. We know that Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, uh, through an interesting trajectory, has ended up as prime minister in Egypt in charge of food distribution during the famine. And, and Jacob, his dad, inadvertently in some way hears about that. And somehow, we can read the story in Genesis, of course, and you know it, uh, the Israelites end up in Egypt. And they're blessed in the beginning and they prosper. The Egyptians get a, a little nervous about this multiplication of all these Israelites. And so they enslave them. And you go, oh, yes, this is the promise to Abraham. So for 400 years, they're enslaved. You know, then God raises up Moses and Moses comes to deliver the people. And, and in so doing, these plagues come against all the gods of Egypt, primarily to humiliate the one in whom they primarily trusted, which was the Pharaoh, because he was the one who was to have control over everything. And yet through all these plagues, everything went chaotic. And even the last one, which was the final judgment on the firstborn in every household, even Pharaoh's. But you remember that the Israelite firstborns were saved. And they were saved because of this ritual that they were to take this lamb, they were to kill it, and they would put the blood on the doorposts. And, and, and they were to stay in their homes and, and sleep under that blood and rest there all night. I've thought about this often and we've talked about this before, but I've just thought about what that must have been like for those firstborn sons to go to bed that night. Thinking, I'm going to sleep under that blood and somehow that's going to protect me. And then the next morning to, to wake if they slept, but the next morning to, to, to wake up and, and, and hear the cries from the Egyptian households that filled the air because their firstborn's had died. And yet, 
I'm alive. And the parents would be grateful and the kids would be grateful. And you'd begin to wonder, how could I ever forget that? How could I forget that this has happened to, to me as, as a people? How could we ever forget that this has really happened, happened to us? And, and, and so then, you know, they, they, they left and they plundered the Egyptians. They left with all kinds of things in their possessions. And they come to this Red Sea and, and, and they hear by this time the chariots coming after them and, and they come up to the sea and, and, and they think, well, Moses, why'd you bring us here? God, why'd you bring us here? We, we were better off as slaves in Egypt. At least we had food to eat and we were alive. And now they were just going to come and be destroyed. And God says, Moses, go stand over there, raise your staff. And when he does, of course, the, the sea parts. And even more amazingly, the riverbed dries up. And they were able to go across, hundreds of thousands of them, able to go across to the other side. And then when the army of Pharaoh comes, they're confused because this cloud that had been going before them went behind them and and it blocked the view. And and, and then when they made it across, then Pharaoh's army tries to go across. And of course, uh, the sea returns and they're killed, thus saved again. How could you ever forget that? He takes them to Mount Sinai and, and God reveals himself to them in this miraculous way through the law. And, 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 and how could you ever forget that? And then they go to this oasis at Kadesh Barnea. And God says, the land's right over there. Send out these spies. And so they send out the 12 spies, you remember. And, and they come back and 10 of them say, though, we can never go in there. Way too big, way too strong, way too mighty. They'll kill us. Two say, Caleb and Joshua, hey, but we're with God. God's with us. So why wouldn't we go in? Uh, everybody sides with the ten. And so then they go through this wilderness period for a generation. But even during that time, God sustains them. Manna every morning, six days a week, they get enough for the seventh on the sixth. And from time to time, quail come and they have meat. He gives them water when they need it, even out of a rock. He preserves them, saves them, keeps them from any enemies that come up against them during this time. And then Moses dies. Joshua takes his place. Great promises to Joshua. Here's the land. Go in. Get it. Every place you put your foot, the Lord says to Joshua, is yours. And so they enter the land and they take it. And that's where we find ourselves now. Joshua, you see, uh, has, has died. And they're to take the land. And each tribe then is assigned a particular portion of that land. And it's theirs then to go in and drive out the inhabitants of the land. And to take it over. Now, just as an aside. An important one. Sometimes that troubles us. I mean, when you think about it. Basically, what the Israelites are doing is going into a land that's inhabited by a people that have cultivated that land and all of that, so much so that it's even referred to as the land of milk and honey. So it's a prosperous land and all of that. And they're just simply to drive out all these people, real people. This is not a video game. This is real people. And you think, well, how can they, how can God... Say to do that. I get it's their land because God has said it's their land, but, but how can they really, how can they really do that? How can God is love and just, how can he do that to that particular group of, of people? 
A couple of thoughts. One, this is not some kind of ethnic cleansing by God because non-Israelites would live among the Israelites. Ruth, of course, Rahab, others. So it isn't that. Nor is um, any one nation or religion called to do this kind of thing now. This was a specific thing for ancient Israel. Ancient Israel was called a theocracy. That is a nation that was called to do the bidding of God. It was both church and state. It was everything all together. And so they had a call from God, um, not only in this religious realm, but also politically as well. Um, No church is called to do this. Um, The church today has no political realm or sphere. We have, um, we're not called to expel non-Christians from the areas in which we live. Uh, We have no civil authority. We don't make any laws as the church and enforce them on the world at large. We don't give out speeding tickets or we don't arrest people for blasphemy. Uh, We uh, have no uh, military mandate. We have uh, no military authority. We are not to take up, as the Bible puts it, the sword. All of our weapons are spiritual weapons, right? The word. Prayer, sacraments. Even as Presbyterians, we don't use enough water to hurt anybody, right? I mean, you know. uh, Our battles are spiritual battles. They're against principalities and powers. So, this kind of thing, where in the name of God, a group of people goes in and casts out another people, isn't what anyone is called to, a specific for that period of time. Uh, some theologians use this expression, and I think it's helpful, that, that this experience, this time period, is an intrusion of God's final judgment at that point in time. A day is going to come when there will be a final judgment. There'll be a judgment and people will be cast out of the new heavens and the new earth. All those who have not forgiven their sins, all those who have not been believers in Jesus, if you will. And so that will happen. So this is a a preview of that. And God had already told Abraham that this wouldn't happen until the sin of the Amorites is full, has reached its maximum capacity. And thus it had. You remember the time that Abraham and God uh, had a little discussion about the destruction of Sodom. And and Abraham was confused a bit. And so he said to God, well, what if there are 50 righteous people there? God said, I wouldn't destroy it. How about 40? I wouldn't destroy it. How about 30? I wouldn't. How about 20? I wouldn't. How about 10? Abraham goes, okay, I get it. I get it. Thus here as well. Thus here as well. It was a society that was evil and wicked. The god Baal or Baal as some have called it. But Baal, the god Baal was a fertility god as many were, but Veil uh, was such that the prosperity that they would trust him for was the result of Baal being intimate with his female counterpart. And the only way that you can entice Baal to be intimate with his female counterpart 
is for worshipers to be intimate in the temple with prostitutes. And so that characterized very much the worship, going to church, the worship of God. So that's how depraved life was in Canaan. Not only that, but they would offer their children even as sacrifices. That's how depraved the society was. In fact, in Joshua, I'm sorry, in Judges chapter one, and one of when they're driving out uh, a certain people, uh, one of the kings of that people says, "Well, I'm finally getting what I deserve. <laughs> Your God has come against us." And so even the king in, jo- in Judges one seven recognizes, "Oh, I'm getting what I deserve." So it's a corrupt, a corrupt place. And the other rationale, of course, for driving the people out was for the protection of the Israelites, because uh, God was saying, "If you don't drive these people out," you'll be tempted to idolatry. So to keep you pure so that from you can come a Messiah eventually to save all the peoples uh, who come to him, all the nations of the world, if you will, uh, then we have to keep you from idol worship. And so if these other nations are there, you'll engage with them in such a way that they'll lure you into idolatry. You'll intermarry. So the intermarrying wasn't Um, something that was uh, nationalistic or racial. It was a spiritual thing. Ruth obviously was a Moabite, but she married in. Why? Because she had the same faith. So the idea is, no, you have to marry those who also believe in Yahweh as, as you do. And so all of that was to protect the people. And then what we see is that they didn't actually. They didn't drive all the people out. Now we can see, if you read through Judges 1, I encourage you to do that. It's a quick read. If you read Judges 1 uh, up to the place where we started this morning, what you'll see is that they didn't drive all the people out. And and in some ways it made sense to us why they didn't uh, drive all the people out. Uh, For instance, some were really strong. Uh, One group said they had iron chariots. Presumably the Israelites didn't have iron chariots. And so they looked at that and said, you can stay. And for others, they just looked at them and said, we can do this together. Let's we'll make a covenant together. We can do this. We can live. We can live together uh, in this in this way. And at certain times, certain ones would help the Israelites, give them information, say, OK, you can stay because you've helped us in various and sundry kinds of kinds of ways. For other people, they said, you know, why should we drive you out? We could actually enslave you and profit by your presence among us. And we can see that all that would make sense, but, but it doesn't make faith sense. It might make common sense. It might make military sense, but it doesn't make faith sense because God says, I will drive these people out. I don't care if they have iron chariots or not. I can deal with that. Just go and do what I've said that you're supposed to do. And I'll provide for you through the land. You don't have to worry about enslaving anybody to help you and to profit by their, by, by their work. I just, Get rid of them, like I said, drive them out, inhabit the land, and you will prosper in this place, trust me. Uh, But they didn't. And so that was the presenting issue. That was the presenting issue. The underlying issue we find in verse 10 of chapter 2. It said, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, that is, they died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord 
were the work that he had done for Israel. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they couldn't pass a multiple choice test on God and what he had done. They might have known it in their heads, but it no longer was everything to them. It no longer defined them. It no longer informed all of their behavior. It didn't inform their conscience who God was and all God had done for them. Um, In essence, they forgot God. The psalmist in Psalm 106 describes that nation. Verse 13 of Psalm 106, describing even the Exodus says, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. That is, they took their own counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness. That is, they had their own selfish desires and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. Verse 19 describes what happened at Sinai. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. And not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before them to turn away his wrath from destroying them. They forgot the Lord. And, and you wonder, how could they forget that? And especially in that generation, how could they forget that, 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 that God had saved them in the Passover and had delivered them from their enemies in the Red Sea and, and even later had taken care of them in the wilderness? And oh, how could they forget that? And then verse 34 begins describing the period of the judges. So they didn't destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Could you imagine? That's where this led. That's why God said, don't let them stay, drive them out. Thus they became unclean by their ask and played the whore in their deeds. The anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the land of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and they were brought low through iniquity. That's this time of the judges. You see, the temptation went like this. The temptation went as they entered the land, the people in the land said, hey, we have it really good here. Look around. We have all that we need. We have a land of milk and honey. Now, we appreciate the fact that you come in here with your own God. That's fine. You can keep him. But if you really want what we have, then you're going to have to play by our rules, by our God here. Baal works here. Baal blesses here. So, so you can have your God on the side, but if you really want what we have, you have to go our way. And the world, you see, comes at us in the exact same way. Well, it's fine that you have your God and all of that. Just keep them to yourself. But if you want what we have, if you want what is here, then you have to worship as we worship. I mean, if you really want success, you have to go after it. If you really want wealth, you really have to go after it. You have to be single-minded about these things. And you have to go after it our way. Follow our rules. 
by our design to love what we love, to pursue what we pursue. That that's that's the way it is. You see. Of course, we're not called to expel people from the world. In fact, you remember in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter seventeen, Jesus says this. He prays this. He says, "I've given them." This is uh, verse fourteen of John seventeen. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. I don't ask them that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world. See, we're in the world. And actually, that's a good thing. We've actually been sent into the world. That's a good thing. This is where we are. We're not to escape it. We're not to leave it. We're to be in it. But we're not to be of it. See, in it, we're to be salt and light because we're different. Because of what Christ has done in us. Because we know what we know to be true about God and ourselves. But we're not to be of it. We're not to have the world's values. The selfishness, the self-centeredness, the drive to get all that I can for me. The drive to satisfy desires that we know to be ungodly. We're to be in it, you see. But we're not to be of it. We're not to seek the world's applause but we're to seek that which pleases God. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. You need to (laughs) seek our approval. Do things our way so that we affirm. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. You're to seek my approval. Those things that I affirm. That's real life. The other will actually kill you. James chapter 4, verse 4. James writes, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with, with the world is enmity with God? What he means, you know, friendships, uh, friends share things in common. We share much in common with the world in which we live and other people in which we live and so forth and so on. But, but, but James is making this point, there's some things which we don't share in common. We don't share how we understand God. We don't share how we understand ourselves as sinners in his sight without hope except in his mercy. And and, and we trust that God is merciful to us. And so we depend upon him as he's offered to us in the gospel through our Lord Jesus and all that he's done, you see. That's very different. Oftentimes when people come to me and they have little, well, they have significant things, but what I I would call ancillary things, about which they criticize the church or criticize Christians. And I always, well, not always, but if I can, I lead the conversation to this point, which is, hey, we differ way more than that. It's not about this issue or that issue or this issue or that issue. Where we really disagree is Christians believe that Jesus is Lord. I mean, that's the fundamental disagreement We believe that he's the Lord. Thus, we follow trust in him alone. 
all the little things that we disagree about come from that big one. So let's talk about that. Because unless we agree there, we're probably not going to agree on all these other things. Right? So, so let's go there. Let's begin at the heart of it. He's the Lord. Friendship with the Lord is not friendship, if you will, in that sense, um, with the world. First John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the, the world or the things in the world. Now, we love the world in the same sense that God loves the world, right? God loves the world in that sense that he sent his son to die so that all who would believe in him would live and not perish. So we love the world in that sense. But we don't love the world as it is and it stands opposed against God. So he says, if anybody loves the world, and this is how John sees that, uh, the love of the Father isn't in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, all the ungodly impulses, all the ungodly inclinations that we have, uh, the desires of the eyes to say, that looks good to me. I don't care what it looks like to God, but it looks good to me. So I want it. And the pride of life, that is, living life in such a way that others are impressed with me. Playing the game that's called See My, See My. <laughs> look at this and look at that of mine so you can be impressed with me. And uh, it's the pride of life that drives us. He says, that's not from the Father but is of the world. And the world's passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then this one, of course, Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That is to say, we need to remember God. How do you renew your mind? Well, the big category is think about God. And we renew it by thinking about God as we study the scripture together and so forth. But, but that's the big thing. Don't forget him. Remember him. Think upon him. Uh, think upon him. Remember him. In the days of the judges, they forgot God. And so then when the world came to them and said, hey, you can have this and you can have this and you can have this and you can have it this way and this way and this way. Then they said that makes sense to us because they had no other category. They had nobody else informing their conscience, nobody else informing their minds, nobody else informing their hearts because they had put God out of it. They had forgotten him. And, and you think they would have gone, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think maybe I should trust God. He's the one who delivered us. He's the one who saved us. He's the one who kept us. He's the one who gave us this land. You, you'd think that so maybe I should trust him and his ways, not yours and your ways. But, but they didn't. They forgot him. He was out of their minds. Thus they were out of theirs. And we can be that way as well. I think so often of passages of scripture that after I read them, I think, why would I not trust God when he's like this? 
The one I read before the confession time out of Matthew 6. To have the God of the universe say, don't worry. I've got this. I mean, God, I mean, if you tell me that, I go, I'm still worried. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you pat me on the, don't worry, Bill, I got this, this will be fine, we'll take it. Oh, that's great, that's great, that's fine, that's fine. But the God of the universe says, don't worry about what you eat or what you wear. Look at how well I take care of the nature. I'll take care of you because I really love you. I mean, the nature is fine. I like the birds and all, but I love you. I made you in my image and I've, I've saved you. So why don't you think I would... T- now, he'll use a variety of means to do that. Some are involvement, but he's the one I say, okay, why would I not trust you? Why would I trust another human being who says... Don't worry, I'll take care of you. Why would I not first trust God? Now, he may take care of me through that individual. But my trust, my hope, is is in God. And of course, the wonderful passage, they all are, but the wonderful passage of Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, Verse 31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how we not also along with him graciously give us uh, all things. Or in John 15, where where Jesus tells us to abide in him, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever you ask, uh, whatever you wish, uh, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to me, my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Why wouldn't I live in him and trust in him? Because the God of the universe says, If you trust me, your joy will be full. The very joy of God, you see, will be in you. So this morning, what is prepared for us is to remember the Lord. To think upon him. Take a moment. Some of you might be able to imagine this. Some of you might not. Either one is fine. But can you imagine your life if you didn't know the Lord? Can you imagine your life if you didn't know the Lord? If you didn't know that you were reconciled to God, that he knew you, not just in the abstract, but he knew you. And that that in any moment in time, when you say, Father, He's listening. And the he there is God. And that that, that he's promised to give you an inheritance that nothing can take away. No matter what today's like, you know that that promise is coming. And even in today, he's in today. And you know he's in today. He's, He's working in such a way that will grow us up and mature us and help us and strengthen us in everything. You know, God is at work in all these things. Can you imagine, if you didn't know that, what's your next best alternative? 
Jesus said your next best alternative. It's gaining the whole world and losing your soul. That's the next best alternative. That doesn't sound great. Oh, in the short run, it sounds really good. But in the long run, it doesn't sound so great. And and even without a soul, an enriched soul, how profitable is the whole world to you? Can you imagine? And so the Lord says, remember me and don't go after anything else. Don't go after any other idols. Don't go after anyone else to define you and tell you who you are. Come to me. Don't don't go after anyone else to direct your life, but come to me. Don't find your joy and delight in any other way but mine. And you scratch your head and you go, if nothing else, that makes sense. (laughs) It really makes sense. Because of what he's done. And because of who he is. So God is gracious to give us props. And he gives us this table. And we hear these words that on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body. It is given for you. Don't forget. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget. And as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you're remembering because you're declaring my death. You're declaring the Lord's death until he comes, you see. We're remembering and we're thinking, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Why would I not trust him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for coming, Holy Spirit. Thank you for convincing us that all this is true. We pray now that you would take God, this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that in the one hand we would be reminded of the fact of the work of Christ, but even more than that, that we would know it. That even as we remember it, that it would come this work of Christ and renew and refresh us, that you would give us great faith, that you would give us a profound joy and that you would strengthen us to live in such a way that we would follow none other. So please do that work in us even as we come to this table. I pray this in Jesus' name.